Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. We all come by the blood of Jesus. That's why we are we are here. It's good news. It's good news. Just one brief announcement I wanted to uh, remind you of in March. We do our members meeting. So I just wanted to remind you of that. Be looking for that. Um, I think it's up on the cycle of slides, but just please be here for that. Um, if you consider yourself a part of our church, we would love to have you there. And thank you. Um, we love you, Bob. We're so glad you were here. And I want to say thank you to Ted, too. I know you do a lot. You do a lot behind the scenes every single week, and we're just so thankful for that. Thank you for, thank you for being with us. And all of you, thank you for being here. I'm going to read the Scripture reading for today. Same one as last week. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's God's word. Amen. Children. You were dismissed. <clears throat> Let's pray again. Father, we just come before your word today, just recognizing that your word is our authority. We want to be people that live by Your Word. We want to be people that believe Your Word. So we ask that You would help us because we just admit that sometimes we don't. I've been asking difficult, challenging passages like this that You would speak through me Um, again, that You would discard the things that I say that are wrong and that You would implant in our hearts the things that I say that would be true. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would come, that You would change us, that You would Heal us, that you would lead us to repentance, lead us to um, the goodness of life and following you, the goodness of your good news. In Jesus' name, amen. So you don't have to have been a Christian for long to discover that Christians don't always act like Christians. If one looks at church history for any amount of time, one will find that what is called the Christian church not only fails to act like Jesus did, but sometimes acts as if they were unbelievers. And even worse, that Christians at times, the church can behave worse than the world. So you think of times like the Crusades. You think of various times throughout church history when heretics were burned at the stake. You think of modern day stories of where churches have blown up because of narcissistic leadership, adultery, embezzlement, and the like. Some of us know that kind of thing from experience. So followers of Jesus can look like they don't follow Him at all. And this is heartbreaking. This is a horrific testimony to the church when that happens, because the church is the people of God. The church is the followers of Christ, and it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And so this is the kind of problem we find in the Corinthian church now in our passage this morning. Paul writes to the Corinthian church to confront them on how worldly Corinth has gotten into 
the sacred space of the church in Corinth. Worldly. So that's a fancy kind of Christian knees term that we throw around, that some of us who have been Christians for a while throw around. But what, what is that? What is, what is worldliness? What does that mean? I think David Wells, um, who was a, or is, I should say, I don't know if he's still teaching, but a professor at Gordon-Conwell, in one of his books, he gives a great description of worldliness that I think is helpful. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. So I love that phrase, makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. So worldliness is when what is internal on the inside of man becomes central, becomes celebrated. And God, who is external, His reality, His ways, His character are ignored, seen as strange, or even just outright rejected as foolishness. And this is the kind of thing that was happening in the Corinthian church. Where the values and morals of those in the church were even worse than those in the world. So it's almost a worldliness on top of worldliness. It was worse than the Greco-Roman world that they were a part of. Again, just the Greek cultural environment, Rome. And so my title for this morning is When the Church Acts Worse Than the World. When the Church Acts Worse Than the World. So modern America has many similarities to Corinth. Again, we've talked about that. It's different. We don't have temples to Aphrodite here. We don't have a empire, so to speak, in the way of Rome. But it has many similarities. And even though we say we're secular, meaning the West, America, even though we say we're secular, we hold it religiously. And the religion that we believe is, like we've talked about in past weeks, a kind of liberalism. One writer who is not a Christian wrote a book that sold like 12 million copies or something over the last few decades, a non-fiction book called Sapiens. You might have seen it at Costco. It was there for a long time. Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. His name is Harari, I believe is how you pronounce it. And he said this. This is not a Christian. This is an atheist. He's painting the picture of Sapiens, the history of humankind according to an evolutionary Radical evolutionary worldview. And he said this, the dominant religion of our age is liberalism. Liberalism, and notice the words he uses, they're religious words. Liberalism sanctifies the subjective feelings of individuals. It views these feelings as the supreme source of authority. What is good and what is bad, what is beautiful and what is right, what ought to be and what ought not to be are all determined by what each one of us feels. Liberal politics is based on the idea that the voters know best and there's no need for Big Brother to tell us what's good for us. Liberal economics is based on the idea that the customer is always right. Liberal arts declares that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Students in liberal schools and universities are taught to think for themselves. Well, little caveat there nowadays. This was written a while ago. But commercials urge us to just do it. Action films, stage dramas, soap operas, novels... And catchy pop songs indoctrinate us constantly. Be true to yourself. Listen to yourself. Follow your heart. Jean-Jacques Rousseau stated this view most classically. What I feel to be good is good. What I feel to be bad is bad. And so that is a version of 
worldliness, a fallen perspective. Has it reaped some benefits in America, that kind of a view? Sure. But that is the story that we believe in our society. And the stories we believe are true seep into every nook and cranny of our lives, including sex. Our view of sex will flow from what we think human beings are, what we think this world is, what we think God is, or whether He exists at all. And so if we believe lies about God, about who we are as embodied human beings, we will certainly believe lies about sex. And so, we need a reversal of values, a changed mindset, a mindset of the Spirit, all that Paul has been arguing with in these several chapters, and now as he tunnels in on this specific view. And we need to know that the reason why I kind of keep bringing up some of these bigger picture things is because sex just isn't the point. We must go higher than that. Anytime we try to discuss, especially in the church, of, of kind of the do's and the do-nots, about sexuality, we got to go deeper. We got to go under that. We got to go to the values of what the culture is preaching and thinking. Because that's the, where the reorientation has to happen. Otherwise, if we just talk about the one, we just focus on the wrong thing. We got to go underneath. We need our mindsets changed. We need to be discipled in the way in which Scripture teaches us. So, verse 1 of chapter 5. We have a title for this verse. How the church acts worse than the world. This is how. Incestuous porneia. That's a word we talked about last week. That is the Greek word for sexual immorality that is in this verse. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Porneia. The narrow meaning, like we talked about last week, was prostitution. That's what that can mean in its most narrow sense. It can also have a wide meaning of all unlawful sexual activity. Last week, we kind of went through Leviticus 18. We read several passages there. And what the Bible says about sex is that any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman is prohibited. That's what the Scriptures teach. And last week, we walked through that in the Old Testament. We're going to do a little bit of that here. But I even want to show you right here, in the context of this verse, we know that. Because of the way that he says, a kind of. So sexual immorality is broad. We're not just talking about prostitution here. It's a kind of sexual immorality specifically that is happening in the church that should not be happening. And so there are many kinds of immorality. Just like if we say, for whatever reason, don't play sports. And then you say, can I play basketball? No, we said don't play sports. We say, well, what about ping pong? Can I play ping pong? No, don't play sports. What about football? You kind of go down the list. So this is a general wide category outside of one man, one woman, in marriage, sexual practice is sinful. And we see that, 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 that Christ exalts marriage. He places marriage highly. How does Jesus talk about it? How does Jesus talk about it? Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees, who were they? They're the religious leaders. They came up to him and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So what's the theme right now? Theme is marriage. Theme is divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered them. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses 
command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Notice how he keeps saying, from the beginning. This has a story. This has a history. From the beginning, what the Scriptures say. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, that again, he's showing, hey, it's not just scriptural authority, my authority. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, and here's the word, sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus has divorce as a very rare time that you should ever be divorced. And his category that he gives is in the case of sexual immorality. And so Jesus' vision of marriage, his vision of sexuality is that it should only take place in that context. His vision is, this went way back to the beginning, male and female. His vision is that it should be permanent. Let no man separate. And so the Scriptures teach us something different than what the world teaches us. I was thinking of P's. Marriage is a divine institution. God's definition gets priority. Why? Because God planned it. He planned it. Jesus just explained how that happened. We read that last week in Genesis. It was His idea. It's about procreation. We talked about that last week. Filling the earth. How does that happen? Through sexuality. It's about promises. God fulfills His promises through it. He crushes the serpent's head through it, through the genealogy of Eve. It's about complementary pairs, male and female, bringing two together. It's about pleasure. Read Song of Solomon. It's not just procreation. It's pleasure, clearly there. It's about a pronouncement. It's about Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. He says, marriage shows Christ and the church. There is a mystery. The mystery is that it's pointing, that it's hinting at a plan that God had from all eternity for a husband to be with a wife. Husband being Christ. Wife being the church. His bride. So it is a holy institution. And so that, again, is some of the background and a little bit on some of the New Testament background of why Paul is using this phrase and saying, there's sexual immorality among you and what that actually means. But here we see a specific kind of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Has. That word implies ongoing. That this is an ongoing, continuing sexual sin. And so the specific category in this broad category is one of incest. Leviticus 18, verse 8. I'm not going to read it, but that's specifically where this category is outlawed and prohibited. But he says not only is incest... Like again, we're not thinking about that a ton in our culture as like affirming incest. But not only is incest a violation of biblical standards on sex, it's a violation of most cultural standards on sex. Lots of them. Not all of them, but lots of them. Roman law at that time was against this particular expression. And they were very sexually expressive and free. But they were not a fan of this. So that's why Paul says, even the pagans... Even the outside world does not even tolerate this. Cicero, remember that name? He was a Roman statesman. He was speaking about a marriage of a woman to her son-in-law and he says this, Oh, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save for the single instance. Probably some exaggeration then there, but, but the shock of it. And so it was not tolerated in their culture. But notice Paul isn't 
after getting the Christians to go after Rome and change the law. That's not like his first impulse. Of course, yes, it's a different society. It's not a democratic society. But his first impulse, well, let's figure out how to change all the laws now. No, that's not what he's doing. He's preaching to the people of God, calling them to something different. He's after getting them to recognize that their behavior is worse than the world's. It's not even tolerated among the pagans. And so even that kind of sexual diversity, to use that buzzword, is not tolerated there. The problem with the church here is not that they tolerate what the world tolerates, but that they go even further than what the world tolerated and affirmed. So verse 2, how is the church worse than the world? They are inflated about incest. They are inflated about incest. Why do I choose that word? Because that phrase, arrogant, Look at that first sentence. And you are arrogant. That's the word. Puffed up. Inflated. Proud of it. The community is not only indifferent about it, they're inflated. They're happy about it. They're snooty about that kind of sexual sin. And we wonder why. Why? Different people kind of speculate on this. The possibility of why could be that because there was money and sex involved, that this actually had to do with maybe a wealthy patron in that church community and a wealthy family. Um, Paul talks a lot about greed. Sometimes he mixes greed in the passages where he prohibits various things. We, we, we already know that the rich were causing problems in Corinth and kind of a separation of class. So that's a possibility. Maybe they didn't confront it because they were afraid. Well, where's the money going to come from? We could use this family. could also be something like a wrong view of the gospel and a wrong view of wisdom and they're just, just pride in, hey, you know what? We're saved. It's all good. doesn't matter much what you do in the body. Not a big deal. This isn't a problem. We're spiritual. We know a lot of stuff. We got all the philosophy right. We know the truth. It's not a big deal what I, what I do. I'm saved. I'm good to go. Maybe it's that kind of thing. But again, those are speculation. We don't know for sure. But we know that pride is one of the great sins of Corinth. Remember the first few chapters. What are you boasting in? He's calling them to boast in the cross. And they're boasting in their sexual sin. and the sexual sin of this man. They have a heart to boast in the wrong things. And then notice that Paul is not just calling out the individual. He's calling out the community. He's calling out the collective. And that's big because we don't think that way. Again, in our individual society, we're just very individualistic. Well, let's say, let's maybe have a private meeting with him, just privately, boom, let's get out of here. But it's a collective. That, hey, this has affected the whole church. And that's what sin does. Sin spreads. It affects. It infects people. It is not isolated. And we have a very sometimes isolated view of sex in our culture. It's kind of, well, hey, whatever they do in their own homes, not a big deal. It's fine. No biggie. It's private. It's isolated. Paul's like, no, that's not the way it works. It's not the way that specific sin works. And we know that because we see how that can affect all kinds of things in families and everything else. But sin spreads. It affects. It infects. It's not isolated. And so he's saying, you're arrogant, church community. Ought you, church community, ought you not rather to mourn? So how should the church respond? How should the church respond when the church acts worse than the world? They should mourn and they should remove the person from among them. This word for mourn, is used in Mark 16.10. In Mark 16.10. Talking about Jesus rising from the dead or right before then. 
She went and told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept the death of Christ. So this is a deep grief. Saying you should be grieved, you should mourn, you should weep over this. You should be like Ezra. So what happened in the book of Ezra? Not a lot of churches are preaching through Ezra. In Ezra chapters 9 and 10, there's this um, picture of mourning and repentance that happens. In Ezra chapter 9, where is Ezra? I had a hard time finding it, to be honest with you. Well, Ezra is after Chronicles. Yay for Bible memory songs. And again, notice this. We talked about this last week again, kind of Leviticus. And why are we going back to the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff? We've got to get the story. We've got to get the story. We've got to know the story. We've got to believe the story. We will believe the story as human beings. Which one are we going to believe? This is the one we believe. Ezra 9. After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in the faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He's not talking about race. That's not the issue here. He's not saying, oh, well, there's kind of the pure race and so there's, there's racism. That's not what's happening here. Racism is a sin. It's the connection between the pagan nations and their idolatrous practices. We read about that in Leviticus. Why does the land spew the pagan nations out? Well, because of some of the practices that they behaved in. In Leviticus 18, some of the pornea that they behaved in. And so he's saying, be like Ezra. You should mourn over these kinds of sins. You should be grieved about it. One commentator put it this way, it's an Ezra-like Paul who deals with the expulsion of the sinner. Just as Ezra mourned over the sins of the community, so Paul enjoyed the Corinthians to mourn over the sin of the incestuous man. Just as Ezra demanded that the sinners separate from their foreign partners or else suffer expulsion themselves, so Paul demanded the expulsion of the sinner unless he separate from his illicit partner. So he's saying when we deal with this kind of thing as a church community, not just me personally, if I was to do that, or you personally, but as a collective, there should be mourning. And there should be removal. Let him, again the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So again, we have allusions to Leviticus. Remember, we read a bunch of the sins of the pagan nations last week and how he's saying, hey, be holy, be separate. Don't do what they do. Why? Because the land is going to spew them out. It spewed them out. And then he's saying, because it will vomit you out if you do the same thing. Leviticus 18, 24-29. I want you to see that, not just hear that from me. He's listed a bunch of lists. It happens in 18, 19, and 20. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among them. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So he's saying, hey, the people of God are sacred space. The people of God are 
sacred space. They are holy. They are separate. They are to be pure. They're not to do what the other nations do. Or they too will be vomited out. What happened to the people of Israel? They got vomited out. What's one of the reasons why they're probably even here being ruled by Rome? Sin. And so he's saying, be removed from among you. He goes on in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So how should the church have responded? How should they have responded? Well, beforehand, before it ever got to things like boasting and arrogance about it, they should have been like Paul, quick and Decisive. I have already, I've already done this. Oh, when I heard about this, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's not late to the game. He already would have acted. In verse 4, you see, how should the church respond? to this type of sin? How should the church respond when they act worse than the world? Kick him out together. Just to use casual language. Kick him out together as a group. When you are assembled, Paul says. When you are assembled. So this is a community action. This is a collective. This isn't like one guy. It isn't like one elder being like, hey, I don't like this guy. Let's get him out of here. No, that's not the way that it works. Again, in our individual society, like guy on YouTube and on his keyboard and on Twitter kicking everybody out of the church, that's not the way that this works. This is a collective experience. This is a group. This is a this is way wrong. And as a group, we recognize this and he must be gone. It's official, solemn occasion. When the church gathers. So it's not a dude making the call. It's the body. It's the whole group. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus is tricky. And I'm not a Greek scholar. I've said that several times. Um, I don't know Greek. But from what I've read, that this phrase, the way that the Greek syntax works in this sentence, is there's trouble about what do they attach it to. And some translations put that phrase in different spots. About where should this in the name of the Lord Jesus be attached? What is it modifying in this sentence? Let's, let's read it. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so one commentator kind of summed up some of the options of where should that be attached Is the sin committed in the name of the Lord? You could actually attach the in the name of the Lord to the sin. So this kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier. It could be that the church community is kind of like, ha, this is great. This can be done in the name of the Lord. He's not, he doesn't care that much about what I do with my body. Not a big deal. Could be an arrogance about that. It could be, are they gathered in the name of the Lord? But when we gather together, we're gathering in the name of the Lord. We're singing songs to Jesus. We're gathering under his authority. Or it could be, has Paul cast judgment in the name of the Lord? Is his pronounced judgment done in the name of the Lord? Today, it's not just me, Paul, being like, you're judged, you're gone. I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus gave authority. And this comes from what he would want. Or, has Paul judged to deliver the man to Satan in the name of the Lord. Is this deliverance to Satan, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is this deliverance to Satan done in the name of the Lord Jesus with the authority of Christ over even Satan? And the point is, you could probably see how a lot of these, again, could possibly be true, some more than others, maybe. But what we do know is that all those things should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, aside from the sin part. That was, even if that did happen, that was because that was wrong. That man was not living under the authority of Jesus by his behavior and his actions.
But again, this isn't just Paul on a hobby horse. He is seeing himself. Whenever he's talking about himself, it's, that it's under Jesus. It's in Christ. That's his whole mindset. That's his whole view. That's where his identity is. And that's where ours should be. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? And we should assemble worshiping Him, praising Him, doing all that He calls us to do, even something like this. So verse 5, how should the church respond? They should respond with destruction for restoration or discipline for redemption, however you want to say it. The church should respond to this activity This sin in their whole community in this way. And these are the verses we just kind of go, what in the world? What is going on? Or why would we ever even do that? And in our culture, how could we do that? How dare us do something like that? So this is intense stuff. This is stark You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the first part, this Satan thing, what is that about? Well, we can go back to Leviticus again. And Leviticus has a similar picture that happens with communal sin. In Leviticus 16, there are two goats. One of them gets sacrificed as a sacrifice of atonement, right? The other one, something happens. The goat has to go and wander out in a desert. The sins of the people of the community get placed on the goat. It's like, where are the sins going to be placed? Essentially, out with Satan and judgment or on the mercy of God and the substitute and forgiveness and sacrifice. Well, in Leviticus 16, verses 6 to 10, you see what the priest does. Aaron shall offer the bowl as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So, you have the tabernacle. You have the people. They're out of Egypt. They're in the promised land or they're on the way. And... There's this sense of sacred space in the community by the tabernacle in their own place as the people of God and all these other places, the pagan nations, the wilderness is where Satan dwells. This Azazel could be, there's questions about is this a place, is this a demon, could be both, like a territorial spirit, that the sins of the community are to go out where the demons are. Go out into the wilderness, out away from sacred space. This picture of the supernatural worldview you have in Daniel, it talks about not just like your everyday average demon, but kind of like the big boys. And and I don't know how all this works exactly, but that's probably some of what is going on here. Where when the sins either get laid on the person, well, in this case, not the person, but the goat as the sacrifice of atonement, or gets laid on to go out, out of the community, out into the realm of, of darkness out into the realm of satanic authority. And we know that that's how Paul views the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 in a a later letter he writes, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That there is a God ruling the world that is Satan. There's a divine being of authority ruling the outside world. So he's saying, hand them over to that out of the sacred space of the community, into, back into the world. So, very stark, very serious, something supernatural. Scary. You were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit 
may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this again, an area where there's some questions. What does he mean right here? Some people think that flesh here is he saying, hey, give him over to Satan, send him out into the world, get him out of the church community, he's not to be a part anymore, so that the destruction of the flesh, so that his body will die, and that happens sometimes. Acts, even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira struck down dead. Later in Corinth, people taking communion in a weird way can die. Physical consequences. So some will say, hey, that's, that's what's happening here. Get him out of the community so that, yeah, his sin might eventually kill him. Judgment. Physical judgment. But, again, the heart of Paul here, there's always a gospel picture. There's always a redemptive picture. This isn't just like, forget about him, he's done. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Hey, he'll die, but you know what? He'll be saved. God will save him. He could be saying that. That could be what the scripture says. I don't think it is. And there's a couple reasons why. One, we're not Platonic dualists. Fancy word. Plato, again, Greek culture, dualism. We don't separate the body from the spirit, the body from the spirit and the soul. We do not do that. We just said it in the confession. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Sometimes in extreme fundamentalist cultures, there can be kind of this, there's still this sense in which the body's kind of bad. Or even when you can talk about sex, kind of, kind of bad. In some traditions of Christendom in its widest sense, eh, bad, celibacy is the best, none of that stuff that can lead to dangerous things. That's not the view of God. That's not the view of God. The body is good. Desires are good. We're not Platonic dualists. And I don't think Paul is either. There's a couple different reasons why. If you look at the verse before, when Paul says, though I'm absent in the body... The word there is different. It's soma. The word there is soma. Not through my body, but hey, my spirit is there. In this part, the word is sarks, I think is how you say it. It's sarks. Sarks and pneuma. Flesh and spirit. To get some help here, to kind of help us understand this. I found one article that I thought was just excellent on this, on this issue by a guy by the name of George Joy. I think he was a um, translation advisor for the Bible Society of India. And he talks about the problem with certain um, tendencies in some Christian circles and trying to separate the, the tripartite view of, of um, human beings. Kind of like we separate the body over here, the spirit over here, and, and everything is just kind of separated that actually that might come from just Greek thought and dualism that isn't in accord with what the Scriptures are actually saying. This is what he says. This is a serious issue. This is a serious theological issue. We have to see this in light of Paul's own understanding particularly and of the total New Testament teaching about man and his salvation. The New Testament never speaks of the salvation of any particular part of the human personality. It's not like God saves one part of you and then the other part, Ugh, the fleshly stuff, let's get that out of here. The New Testament never speaks of the salvation of any particular part of the human personality. Body, mind, and soul constitute one unity. Jesus Christ came to the world to redeem the total person. Jesus' ministry was not confined to the soul. A doctrine based on a two-part or three-part view of the human personality is incongruous with the entire New Testament teaching. We will be guilty if we force Paul to accept the thinking of later pietism in which the inner self of a person is separated too sharply from the tangible realm of human life. These arguments become all the more impressive when we consider the occurrences of pneuma, that spirit, not in isolation, but in opposition to sarks. Sarks on its own can sometimes mean physical body, and pneuma on its own can imply the non-physical, but when the two terms stand together in opposition... The contrast in most cases is different. I'm almost done. Hang on. In the majority of the instances in which Sarks and Numa oppose each other, they draw a contrast between the activity of the Spirit of God and the powers that oppose the Spirit of God. 
See Romans 8, 4, 5, 6, 9, 13, Galatians 4, 29, 5, 16, 19, 6, 8. You, you get the point. So, sometimes when Paul talks about these different things, he's not trying to separate the body from the soul. It's that the orientation of the flesh, the fleshly mind, again, not the physical mind, the fleshly orientation to, to do our own desires, to reject God, to go away of the worldly way of thinking, that that is the part that will be destroyed. And that the pneuma, the activity, the, the orientation toward the ways of righteousness, the orientation towards the ways of Jesus, His character, that that will be brought back. And so it could be that Paul's heart here is, again to use this writer's words, that what is to be destroyed is not the body, but the tendency which binds the offender to sin. And so when he's saying, hey, hand him over to Satan, get him out of the church community, that hey, one day, even, even by God's grace outside, that he will come to his senses. And that he will then not just be oriented and focused on his flesh, again, not his physical body, but the, but the sinful desires of his heart, but that he will then be saved on the day of the Lord, which is in the future. And so I think that that is probably what Paul is saying here. And we can't think, wait a second, that's kind of weird. Well, if, if he's out there... He's under the authority of Satan. That sounds pretty bad. Like that's that's kind of like it, you know. Or, or, or how could Satan be used for something good? Well, if you read your Bible, Satan oftentimes is used as an agent for God in a mysterious, sovereign way to produce good. Even something like when Satan enters Judas. One of the reasons why Jesus got crucified. God had a redemptive plan even in that moment to save the world, even through satanic work and sin. That's how he redeems the world. So, at times, even Satan, you think of issues like Job and things like that. Even sometimes, authority can be given where God can still use it for a redemptive purpose. And so, even if you're not following me on all that stuff, get this part, that the point here is Paul's desire, even in this intense, solemn moment, to say, sorry, buddy, you're out. This is, this is not okay. You can no longer be a part of the church. You're not coming for communion. You're, 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 you're outside. That his heart is that he would come back. That he would be saved in the day of the Lord. That he would turn from his sinful desires. That he would begin to walk according to the Holy Spirit. And so that's his heart. There's a, a gospel heart here. Discipline. Things like that is never just to like crush the person and that's it. That's, that's a law way of life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is good news. It's grace. It's even grace in judgment. The cross itself was Jesus goes in our place. He receives the judgment so that we could be made right with Him. So what's the heart? The heart is the gracious, the good news that He would see this man even back and in the day of the Lord. And parts of us go, eh, I don't know that I really want to see Him in the day of the Lord. That's a problem. You can probably think of people in your life maybe, eh, I'd rather not see them in the day of the Lord. But hey, this is the mindset here. Is this intense? Does this need to happen sometimes in the church? Yes. Is the American church too soft on this? Yes. Especially when it comes to these issues. Especially when it comes to sexual issues. And normally not in the ways we would think. Normally not just in, like we've talked about here, how homosexuality can be a sin. I've clearly said that. But that's not the banner of the church. And sometimes the church where the church has blown it isn't necessarily in that area. It's in things like no-fault divorce. Things like just treating it like, eh, it's no big deal. Or cohabitation and other things like that. We got other issues at times than just one going after one particular sin. And so our heart is to see all sinners repent and turn. Even the ones that we might have to say, you know what, you got to get out. You got to go out into the world. That the good news of, of the gospel would see them restored, would see them made whole. And so, the body is good. Jesus' body was good. Jesus came down to us in a body to save us, 
to restore the goodness, to rise again from the dead, that one day in a new heavens and a new earth will be restored, made whole, new bodies. And so we fellowship with Him when we celebrate communion. We remind ourselves, hey, man, I have blown it at times in my life and Jesus is my only hope. And I can receive cleansing and this can remind me all the time of the good news of forgiveness that Jesus can bring. It also can remind me of the goodness of the body. That this body isn't some evil thing just to be done away with. But that God is going to restore it. That He gave, He broke His flesh, His body for us. To forgive us, to redeem us, to make us whole. So all of us, to get on last week, all of us who have sinned sexually, or all of us, and all of us have in different ways, all of us who have received maybe some kind of sexual suffering in our life, that man, we can come to the table and be made whole and rejoice in the good news of what Jesus has done for us. So let's do that. way you get your joy restored is by looking at Jesus.
not by looking at your sin or not just by staring all the time at maybe the sin that was done to you. You look at Jesus and you get your joy restored. So that's what we do now. We, we, we celebrate the good news. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.